more pointedly for people, he understands this because he experienced all these things. I mean, Jesus, look, Jesus Christ was born into a world of illness and probably pandemic and suffering and death. And in the days of first century Judea and Galilee, you know, they didn't have medicine. And so he probably saw a lot of people die. You know, um, I was reading a book that said that, you know, an infection could kill you or an abscessed tooth or the flu, right? And so he saw these things and so much of his ministry, as you know, is, is encountering people who are ill. And so he accompanies us in all this. And then, you know, I like to remind people, look, his father or his foster father, Joseph, dies before his public ministry. So we can presume that he suffered and died. So he saw Joseph die. And so he gets all of this. He's with us. Please help me. I need your guidance, Lord. Come on and get me, Lord. A real one coming to your throne. Gotta believe that I'm of your own. Falling to my knees, praying to God, bless me with my one and my needs. Know that He got my back and no choice but to proceed. Only thing that I ask is that you do set me free. Free. Falling to my knees, praying to God, bless me with my one and my needs. Know that He got my back and no choice but to proceed. Only thing that I ask is that you do set me free. Look. Sometimes it doesn't hurt to be selfish. No, My friends, welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 105, and it's the first episode of the summer. Not like summer solstice summer, but like July and August. You know, we just finished Pride, and now we're going into the heart of the summer months. And no like real technical series that we're going to be doing. Uh, we're just going to call it like, I don't know, hashtag summertime. You know, we're going to have some summertime conversations. The next series that's coming will be in September, and it's going to be an eight-part series on hell, and it's going to be called To Hell With Hell, and we're going to talk to lots of different people who have lots of different perspectives on hell, uh, the theology of hell, the doctrines of hell, what it is, what it's not, all the things, so buckle up and uh, get ready for that, but For now, we're just going to have some fun conversations with uh, lots of different people uh, for the summer. And today we're going to kick it off with uh, Father James Martin, who is a Jesuit priest in the Catholic Church. Uh, You go Google his name. You will see all the amazing work he does. He'll talk a little bit about that in the episode. Uh, Kind of as a disclaimer, this episode is a little bit shorter than normal because once we kind of got some technical difficulties out of the way. We only had about 30 minutes before we had another appointment. And so uh, we had to make it pretty quick. I tried to narrow down my questions to the ones I was most uh, interested in asking him. And uh, I think we had a really good conversation. By the time we were done, we both said, man, I wish we had um, a whole lot more time to talk. So I can't wait to share this with you. Uh, Real quick, a couple things. Number one, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show financially. And so if this has encouraged you, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, uh, consider throwing a little bit of cash at it, anywhere from $3 a month up to $20 a month. Every tier gets its own reward. Uh, I'll put the link to that in the show notes. And also the Heretic Shop uh, is a place to go and buy some t-shirts, uh, hoodies, jackets, backpacks, mugs, all sorts of different things. Uh, go check it out, the What If Project Heretic Shop. Link to that will also be in the show notes. And uh, special music today, uh, same as last week, my friend Young Citizen, who is a 
coworker at Apple. He's an artist here in Charlotte, North Carolina, doing amazing things in the world, a really big voice in our community. He has a real passion for people. Uh, he's an encourager, a uh, helper, always willing to lend a, a helping hand and also an encouraging voice, uh, especially in my life, always reaching out to me, letting me know he listens to the podcast, encouraging me to keep going, keep moving forward. And I love him, love his music. So go download it, Young Citizen. That's Y-U-N-G. He's on Apple Music. He's on Spotify. Blast it in your cars. When people ask you, who is that? Say, that's Young Citizen. And you are not living your life unless you are listening to his uh, music. So anyway, all that to say, uh, like I said, this is episode number 105. And it's the first part of our summer our summer bash, summertime. Enjoy. Wish I had a mansion. Wish I was dressed up something fancy. Uh, wish I on a pot on some gold with the rainbow by the time Clancy. Uh, wish I had no debt. Maybe then I can't flex. Go ahead and run, I'm a check. Wish I had no other same most beat, I'm a chest. Wish for my people. Uh, wish I had more better leaders. Have enough to make our own land. Name my own beach and we bring our own sand. Where we live is so bland. So much for high on demand. Tiptoe around through and high lows. Feel like James Brown, love we go ahead and dance. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're joined by Father James Martin, who is a Jesuit priest and uh, best-selling author of a number of different books. Uh, two of my favorites being Jesus, A Pilgrimage, and Building a Bridge, which I'll put in the show notes for you. And so, James, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to talk with you. Thanks. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Thank you. So I grew up uh, in the Christian evangelical church. And if I'm being super uh, honest, all things Catholic were, were fairly foreign to me. And so uh, the first time I heard about you was actually from a friend who I worked with at Apple uh, when I used to live in New Jersey. And shout out real quick to John Santangelo. He'll probably be listening. But uh, John told me stories of your teachings and how impressed he was at the way you carry yourself through the world, uh, the example that you set in the Catholic church for all followers of Christ. And so he told me a number of times, you know, you've got to pick up this guy's books. Hopefully someday I'll get to connect with him. And so uh, here we are, and I'm, I'm excited to talk with you. But to kick us off, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, who are you? What do you do? Some of the high points of your story. Yeah, sure. And happy to be with you. Um, Thank you. I'm a Jesuit priest, which means that I'm a member of a Catholic religious order. So a religious order is a community of people that live together, like the Franciscans or Benedictines or Dominicans. Um, I was born in uh, Philadelphia. I won't go through my entire life story. Sure <laughs> the whole history. <laughs> I worked for, uh, uh, graduated from the Wharton School of Business, worked for GE for a while, and then entered the Jesuits in 88. And um, yeah, I've been, uh, you know, my Jesuit training uh, it was philosophy studies, theology studies. I worked with refugees in Kenya for two years. And um, since my ordination in 1999, uh, I've been obviously a, a priest, working as a priest, but um, also working at uh, a Catholic magazine called America, mm. which is in New York. And I write books on religion and spirituality and, you know, books on Jesus and the saints and prayer. And so mainly, you know, I'm a Jesuit and a priest and a, and a writer. Those are kind of three vocations. So uh, a Jesuit priest, excuse my ignorance, but maybe give That's us okay. a quick, quick rundown. Like what's the difference between a Jesuit priest and maybe a, a different kind of Catholic priest? Yeah, sure. So most priests that people would know um, would be parish priests. Okay. Yep. So, okay. or technically diocesan priest in a diocese. And, um, you know, they'd be uh, focused on pastoral work, right? In a parish, um, they're sort of geographically based, but 
Mm. Uh, in the history of the church, there have been religious orders um, where uh, priests and brothers, so people who are ordained and not ordained, get together and live in community. They take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, right? It's about living in community and doing certain kinds of work. And that's, you know, men's religious orders and women's religious orders. So, mm. you know, people would know like Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity, right? They, they live in community. They work yeah. with the poor. Uh, Jesuits, um, we do all sorts of things. I think we're mainly known for uh, education, uh, you know, colleges, universities, and high schools. But we work with refugees and we work in, you know, soup kitchens. And, and sometimes we're asked to take over parishes. So there's a little overlap. Hmm. But, you know, we all sort of, uh, I like to say it in terms of, you know, organization, we all report to the Pope. We're just, <laughs> it's different ways of living out that vocation. It's, it is kind of confusing, but if you think about it, it says living in community, it, it makes a little more sense. That makes sense. Now, did you get to choose to be a Jesuit or were you like placed? Is there like a placement process or? No, another good question. It, you, you choose. So, okay. you know, the question is, you know, do you want to, uh, you know, be a parish priest? Do you want to be, you know, focused on the parish and just you know, kind of geographically centered. Um, I mean, a parish priest, let's say you're a priest in North Carolina, right? Mm -hmm. Is that you're in North Carolina, right? Yes. Yeah. So like if you're a priest in the diocese of Raleigh, okay. Yeah. You're in Raleigh. I mean, like, that's it. You're Mm -hmm. the bishop there would assign you to different parishes and, you know, you might start off as a assistant, but then you become a pastor and, you know, maybe you become a bishop, you know, Mm -hmm. but you're based in Raleigh. If you're a Jesuit and you enter the Jesuits, you know, they could assign you to some school in Raleigh, but then the next day they can assign you to some place in California. You know what okay, I mean? Okay, that makes sense. So it's a little more open-ended. And so you would pick that kind of life. Like, what, what do you feel more comfortable? Do you feel more comfortable doing different kinds of jobs and living in community? Or do you feel more comfortable living in a rectory as a parish priest? That, that's kind of the difference in the priesthood. That makes sense. I guess in my world, it was kind of like thinking, do you want to be a pastor of a church? Do you want to be a missionary where you're going to travel to different yeah. places, that kind of thing? Yeah. And that's gotcha. the same. And there, you know, the, the Jesuits are the largest men's missionary order. I mean, we, as I said, I worked in Kenya for two years with mm. uh, refugees in East Africa, in, in, in Nairobi. And so, you know, that's something that a, a parish priest uh, wouldn't do because he spoke, you know, he's focused on the local parish. I know it's conf- it's confusing <laughs> for a lot of people. Now, it makes it even more confusing, probably not good to confuse people more, but uh, local bishops, so like the, the Bishop of Raleigh, right, mm-hmm. might ask Jesuits to take over a parish in Raleigh, you know, and we have in the past. And so people say, wait a minute, I, th- I thought you weren't parish priests. And it's like, well, it gets a little confusing. So one of the books that you wrote is called uh, Building a Bridge. And for listeners, the subtitle is How the Catholic Church and the LGBT Community Can Enter into a Relationship of Respect, Compassion, and Sensitivity. And uh, this episode will drop probably in July and will be fresh off of a series that we're doing in June for Pride Month, where I'll be talking to different LGBTQ people about their stories and their experience. And so I'm wondering if you could give us maybe like a snapshot of what does it look like for, for you to have a hand in building a bridge between the Catholic church and the LGBT community and what ideas like, if any, from your experience in the Catholic church might translate over into the Protestant world, if that makes sense. Well, another great question, because I was just reading uh, that it might be harder, um, you know, in the Protestant world in some places, right? Not every place in some places it's easier, Hmm. Uh, but basically, you know, I got started sort of, 
in earnest about two or three years ago after the Pulse nightclub massacre yeah, yeah. Uh, in 2016. And that led me to write this book, Building a Bridge, which led to a lot of, you know, uh, invitations and also pushback from people. And then eventually last September, I ended up meeting with Pope Francis. Um, mm. and I'm, not, I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying that it was an interesting journey. Yeah. Wow. You know, and I, th I think that, you know, what I, one of the things I take away is that, um, you know, it's basically about listening to, to these people, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, most of these people are, they're preached at, right? They're, they're spoken down to, they're treated like dirt. Um, they're told what to do, what not to do. Uh, they're told that they're not good Christians, you know, and like, you know, which of us, you know, is not, you know, as we say in the Jesuits, a loved sinner, right? I mean, none yeah. of us are perfect. I mean, everybody's sinning in some way. Mm. It's just that the churches tend to look at the LGBT person as the only sinner. And, you know, mainly because they don't know them. So a lot of it's about getting to know them and listening. I mean, Catholics sometimes say to me, oh, why should we let these people in the church? They're sinful. Well, what about you? You know, right. what sins are you doing? Oh, well, that's right. different. Well, of course right. it's different because we tend to focus only on the LGBT person and only on their their, their sexual morality. It, mm. it really is it really is discriminatory. So, but basically just listening to them, you know, what's your experience of God and what's your experience of Jesus and, and how has the church helped or hurt them? And, you know, for Catholics, I say, um, and it may be slightly different in terms of the Protestant theology, but probably not too different. I say, look, you know, you're a baptized Catholic. You're a Catholic already, mm. you know? You're as Catholic as the Pope, the local bishop, or me. So, you know, mm. you're a member of the church already. Yeah. I think that's a huge piece is the, is the proximity piece. You know, I think even looking back over my own, my own life, and I used to pastor a church, and it's easy when you live in your religious bubble. You know, for me, it was sure. this very uh, evangelical bubble, and it's easy to, you know, be close friends with a lot of people who think like I do. And it's very yeah. easy then to point the finger at people who think or or live very differently than I do. But once I left uh, pastoring a church, I got a job at Apple, which is where I still work. And this was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And at Apple, we, we work with tons of different people from tons of different backgrounds. And I'm now a very close friend with a lot of people who are gay, lesbian, trans, all different sorts of mm -hmm. people with different backgrounds. And now that I'm close to these people, I see them in a much different light. Yeah, And it's much yeah. easier to see things from their perspective, much easier to have an opportunity to listen to their story. Once you get to know them, like everything feels like it changes. Yeah, I mean, which is what Jesus does in the Gospels. I mean, yeah. he invites the disciples to get to know people who are on the margins, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I want to use another analogy and I think helps people. Um, when we think of college students, for example, okay, so most college students, um, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, we're sex are sexually active. Okay. We know that just from studies. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they're sexually active, which means they're, you know, having sex before getting married. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, when you talk about college students in the Catholic church, no one says, Oh my gosh, how can you talk to those people? They're disgusting. Right. You know, or they're sinning, you know, and yeah, technically they are going against church teaching about, you know, premarital sex. Right. And, and most uh, Christian churches teaching about premarital sex, but no one treats them like that. Right. No one, I mean, people say, all right, we need to meet them where they are. We might need to talk to them about their sexual morality. But no one like dismisses this entire group as these disgusting things right. that should never be talked to. And why is that? Well, to your point, because we know them. Yeah. You know, and we, we understand their lives and the complexity of their lives. And that's not to say that sexual morality is important, but you would never say that to 
a, a, you know, a, a, someone who's ministering to college kids, like they're disgusting, or how could you do that? And yet, that's the way we treat LGBT people, because again, to your point, we don't know them. And I think what's changing is people are getting to know them, yeah. you know, in their families and friends. And in a lot of ways, too, they're given a little bit more of a platform in certain areas. So I think people through social media and just technology in general, it's easier to get access to their stories and just hear their voices a little bit more than maybe in the past. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, one of the other reasons that people are so, you know, angry sometimes is because of their own complicated sexuality. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to a lot of psychologists about this because I've gotten a lot of pushback and I, and the, the anger is just kind of off the charts. And they, they all say, look, you know, if someone's that angry and, you know, screaming at you, it's something mm -hmm. about them and it's yeah. something about their own sexuality. And, and often you see that the pushback to some of the ministry that I'm doing and, and not just me, but other people comes from, uh, you know, self-identified, you know, former gays, right? right? Yeah. Um, people who've gone through conversion therapy or, or they, I'm not gay anymore. And so, you know, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to figure this stuff out. Right. For sure. And that was my daughter screaming in the background by okay. <laughs> not going to edit it out. We'll, we'll just leave it in there. It's, it's uh, quarantine days and it just is what it is. So. Of course, no problem. <laughs> but uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about comes out early on in the book. You, you say that your, your book urges the church to treat LGBT community with respect, compassion, sensitivity, and then the LGBT community to reciprocate, reflecting those virtues in its own relationship with the institutional church. And so I'm curious, and I know you touched on it briefly in your book, but what might you say to the LGBT person who has received nothing but shame from the church? Like this is an extreme example, but I think of a friend of mine who uh, as a teenager was literally called out by his pastor in the middle of a sermon uh, for being gay. Like the pastor told him in front of the whole congregation that he needed to repent of his sin. God wasn't happy because of his sexuality. And so like long story short, he ended up leaving the church, uh, uh, so never, sad. never going back. And he yeah. probably has very little, if any respect for that pastor or even right. the church at large. So like, obviously don't get me wrong. I realize that respect is important on both sides, but what words do you have to that, that person, you know, as a priest, uh, for the LGBT person who's carrying a lot of shame, a lot of pain in the way that they've been been treated. To put it plainly, maybe some people just are at a place where showing the church respect almost feels like an emotional impossibility for them at this oh, point. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I wrote two editions of that book. And the first book was really sort of focusing on that a great mm. deal. But um, I, in subsequent conversations with LGBT groups, they, they, they said that to me. And they also said, look, you know, this two-way bridge that I'm talking about in the book, that's fine if you have access to these people, but mo mm. you know most LGBT people don't. So I think the first thing, first thing I would do in that that situation with that person is listen and also apologize. Mm. I mean, because that person should never be treated like that. I mean, like that's right from the Gospels, right? Yeah. Jesus talks about not right, judging. Right. And you know, how many people in that congregation were were you know not sort of following church teaching in other ways, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, not forgiving, not being loving, not giving to the poor, right? Yeah. Um, and I would also say this, which I stress in, in the second edition of this book, um, the onus is on the church. Mm. Okay. In terms of outreach, the onus is on the church. All I mean by respect, compassion, and sensitivity, you know, is, is treating that pastor, you know, what Jesus says, you know, pray for those who persecute us. That's what I mean, you know, mm. treating them, you know, with dignity and respect and, and not responding in kind. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, but it is hard. And I think that it's not surprising that so many people feel distanced from the church when they're treated like that. I mean, that's, I've heard stories like that and it just, it just kills me. Mm. Uh, but the other thing I would say is this, that that pastor is not the whole Christian church. Yes. Yeah. And I often say something a Jesuit told me years ago, which really helps to wake people up, which is if you have an encounter with a bad doctor, does that mean you'll never get a checkup again? Mm. You never go to the physician again. You never go to a hospital. You never, I mean, you know, that pastor is, is, is a jerk basically. Yeah. Um, and that is not the whole Christian church. And it, it is interesting people in, in religion, people tend to shut it off because of bad experience with one person, but in other fields, you know, again, like if you go to a, I mean, to take a much more banal example, you know, if you go to a restaurant, you get food poisoning, you just say, I'm never going to go to a restaurant again. Mm. And I think religion is so fraught for people. Um, but that's a terrible story. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really, that's, it's inexcusable. And no wonder people feel distant. So what I'm trying to do with this ministry, again, with many other people is to remind people that not only are they, they're baptized, they have as much right in that church as that pastor does. Um, but that they also should be leavened and to kind of advocate for themselves. It is hard though. It's difficult. Mm -hmm. I think too, one of the things that people can do as maybe allies of the LGBTQ community is, you know, in those extreme cases like that, or even ones that aren't so extreme, you know, they might not ever get an apology from the pastor, from the church, from the church people, but as someone who is a follower of Christ, who might consider themselves an ally, I can almost apologize to you on behalf of the church. I absolutely right? agree. Like I, that, I could yeah. say, like you said, like I could say that person, what they did is terrible, yeah. but they don't represent the larger church. So as someone who is also part of the church, let me be the one to apologize to you on behalf. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I do that all the time. Now as a priest, it's a little more quote unquote official, you know, yeah. in the church from sure. my, not, I'm not saying it's more official than you. I'm just saying in the Catholic church, people feel it's more official. But I say to Catholics all the time, you're a member of the church. You're a baptized member of the church as much as I am. You can, you're, you know, we're all baptized priest, prophet, and king at, um, or priest, prophet, and ruler at our baptism. Mm. You, you can baptize, you can, you can, um, you can apologize on behalf of the church. And that actually, that means a lot to people. Yeah. But I, I think it's really important to just, you know, be blunt and say that guy's wrong. Right. Yeah. No one should ever be called out from the, I mean, you could call every single person in that church out right in some way you know? shape or form yeah <laughs> like, sure because we're all i mean you know unless you know jesus is sitting there you know we'll, we'll leave him out of yeah everybody else though could definitely get something called yeah. out <laughs> including the pastor yeah exactly i, I was always so, so so weird to me that like when i was a pastor i remember uh one time i was gonna serve communion and the elders pulled me aside beforehand and said you know what, what are you gonna do if a, if a gay couple shows up in the church oh, and i was gosh. like I was like, I, I guess give them something to eat, you know, like, like Jesus would have done. And like they said, Jesus no, did. yeah, they're like, no, like they're not allowed to come to the table until they repent of their sin. And I'm like, but there's other people, like, even if we're going to call their life a sin, fine, let's, let's do that. But what about everybody else? Like, what about people look, who are breaking other laws in the Bible? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, also, look, one of the things I often point to is this. What about divorced people? Now, Jesus... Yeah could not be any clearer about divorce in the Gospels. Right. No, no clearer. And that's one of the most sort of historically attested, uh, you know, Gospel readings, right? Hmm. And yet we say, well, you know, we understand it differently. You know, and we don't, we don't treat divorced people like dirt, right? Right, you know? right. Yeah. Well, and it's, why is that? Because we know them. 
Yeah. And so it's, it's really, you know what? A lot of it's just plain old homophobia. I mean, yes. we just don't like them. Um, I always think of this may test your memory. Do you remember the movie, uh, a few good men? I remember it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. This may be a little off topic, but there's a line. It's basically about a group of soldiers that hazed a guy and ended up killing him. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there's a long, um, discussion in court, uh, where I think it's Tom Cruise's characters tries to find out, you know, basically why did they do it? Right. Mm. And in the end, I, I always come back to this. In the end, they, he basically says, you know why they did it? They didn't like him. Yeah. And it's, they didn't like him. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of people are just homophobic. They just don't like them. Yeah. And why, why focus on them instead of other people? I think that's one of the answers. Yep. I agree. So let's switch gears a little bit to go to your book, sure. uh, Jesus of Pilgrimage. Um, I loved this book because you sort of walk us through your own journey of the Holy Land and talk to us about like various Bible stories as you describe the scenery throughout your own journey. So I thought it was really cool. But for me, Thanks. the best thing about this book is that I picked it up like five years ago when most of my thinking about God and Jesus was still very, what I would say, conservative, evangelical. And so at the time, mm -hmm. the book really pushed up against some of my own personal boundaries, not because it was like super mm -hmm. radical, but just because of the way in which you presented Jesus and the way you talked about some of the stories that I was raised with were so different than what I was taught. And so mm -hmm. what I wanted to do is just ask you, if you don't mind, maybe talk to us about what's your favorite story regarding Jesus that you talked about in that book? And maybe take us back to the spot where that story would have taken place in the Holy Land and, and show it to us with some, some fresh eyes. Yeah, well, I want to ask you, though, because I'm fascinated. What about, what about the book sort of bumped up against your idea of Jesus? Was it his humanity? I'm just curious. I think it was probably his humanity. I think it was yeah. just, you know, I was, I think in the world that I grew up in, you know, Jesus was obviously human, but was more so divine. And right. I think you just really brought him into the real world, put flesh on him. And I just, Thanks. it just pushed up against what I wasn't used to. But now I'm at this place where I've evolved so much. I'm like, yes. Like I went back and I reread my highlights. And I'm like, this makes so much sense now. So. <laughs> yeah. And you know, have you been to the Holy Land by any chance? Or I have not. It's on my bucket list. You will go. I'm sure you will go. And part of going there is, is it, it reminded me of something. And I will get to your question. Something yeah, yeah. Pilgrim said uh, this year when we went, which is, <laughs> um, and everybody says this, you know, you're standing in front of the Sea of Galilee. And he said, look, I always knew, I always believed in it, obviously, mm. right? I mean, I believe in Jesus, but it almost seemed like mythical, semi-mythical. Mm. Yeah. And you go to these places where he lived and you see what he saw. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to deny his humanity. And you say, well, here's where he walked. Here's mm. the path from Nazareth to Capernaum, right? I mean, like, look, there's no other play to, there's no other way to get there this is where he walked and you say, Oh my gosh, you know, the humanity really comes up. Yeah. I would say one of the most powerful moments for me. Um, I mean, I, the sea of Galilee, frankly, just looking at it is, is really stunning. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the first time I was there, I was with a, another Jesuit friend and we were on our own. I was doing research for this book and I've since gone back with, you know, big groups of pilgrims, but we were on the sea of Galilee and um, we found this, uh, sort of place called the Bay of Parables, where he probably preached the parables. Now, look, it's a very small area. So if it's not here, it's 100 feet from here, right? Mm, I mean, yeah. is it exactly in this spot? No, but there's only certain places. <laughs> it's in this ballpark it somewhere. Yeah. 
Yeah, pardon me? It's in this ballpark somewhere. It's yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we were standing in front of this Bay of Parables, which, you know, is a kind of naturally occurring amphitheater, which has good acoustics. Jesus would have been in the boat preaching the parables. Why? Because sound ca carries much easier over water. So you get mm -hmm. these kind of real life explanations for why he was doing these things. And I looked around and I saw, believe it or not, fertile ground, rocky ground, and thorn bushes. Mm. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's, it's the parable of the sower. Mm. And it reminded me that, you know, Jesus wasn't, you know, like you and I, if we're standing up in a, a church preaching, we talk about thorn bushes. Well, you know, we're in church, right? And we yeah. sort of, you know, imagine this, imagine that. You know, Jesus was probably pointing to things right there. Mm. Like people, you know, for whom the lure of wealth and the cares of the world choke things off are like those thorn bushes right behind you. Mm. Not like a thorn bush. And people who accept the word of God and put it into action are like that piece of fertile ground right there. Mm. And it grounded the gospels in a way that I could have never imagined. It really, it sort of blew my mind. I mean, they're, 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 and no one had kind of carted in these thorn bushes to plant them there to make it look like a theme park, you know? Mm. Yeah. So it's just, it's just an incredible place to be. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was to give people a, a sense of that. Not to say like, you know, too bad you can't go to the Holy Land and you'll never really experience things, but to kind of ground it for people and to remind us that, you know, fully human, fully divine. We, most of us tend, and in the Catholic world, this is true, we tend, like yourself, to focus on the divine. And we forget he's, you know, he's a human being. Yeah, I think it's important to uh, put skin on Jesus. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, he walked around, and we tend to think of that on Good Friday, right, when he suffered. But, yeah, I mean, what about the other 30 years? I mean, he's, you know, he's walking around, and he's, he's getting sick and getting tired and, uh, and, and living in these real-life places and dealing with real-life people. Yeah, that's right. So speaking of real-life places, and we'll end with this question, but uh, I was curious, where, for our listeners, we're kind of recording this in, in April uh, or in the midst of COVID-19 stuff. Um, but what do you think Jesus's message would be to people during these days? Like if you had a microphone today, could broadcast his message to the world, um, as we head into whatever a new normal might look like, um, what do you think his words would be to us in these moments? Wow. Well, you know, asking a Jesuit to speak on behalf of Jesus is always <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> dangerous. I, I, yeah, I, I get your question. Um, yeah, I'm with you and I understand mm. what you're going through. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I like to say to people, um, and this is helpful in my own spiritual life. Uh, okay, so we, you and I believe Jesus is the son of God, you know, fully yeah. divine. We also believe he's a man, he's a person, right? Uh, fully human. So he understands us in two ways. Number one, he understands us, you know, as God, right? He, yeah. he completely understands what we're, I mean, obviously God understands <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um, but but more specific, or I think more pointedly for people, he understands this because he experienced all these things. Mm. I mean, Jesus, look, Jesus Christ was born into a world of illness and probably pandemic and suffering and death. And in the days of first century Judea and Galilee, you know, they didn't have medicine. And so he probably saw a lot of people die. You know, um, I was reading a book that said that, you know, an infection could kill you. Hmm. or an abscessed tooth or the flu, right? And so he saw these things and so much of his ministry, as you know, is, is encountering people who are ill. Yeah. 
And so he accompanies us in all this. And then, you know, I like to remind people, look, his father or his foster father, Joseph, dies before his public ministry. So we can presume that he suffered and died. So he saw Joseph die. Yeah. And so he gets all of this. He's with mm -hmm. us. So it's really powerful to me to think of this, this human Jesus, you know, human and divine, who gets it, right? And look, when he comes back, I mean, you know, we're, we're in April now and it's, you know, post-Easter. When he comes back, he comes back with his wounds. Yeah, yeah. Haven't you always thought it interesting that when Jesus comes back, he's not, in a sense, quote unquote, you know, cured of his wounds? I mean, isn't yeah. that interesting to you? Like he could have come back with no wounds and, and the theology would have said, oh, you know, it, you know, he triumphs over even his wounds. But no, he comes back with the nails and the nail prints. That's a, to me, that's always been endlessly fascinating. Yeah. I've been reading through the, the Gospels, kind of what I've been focusing on the last few months. And more often than not, you know, reading the Gospels again. And I've been having your book actually side by side as I read through oh, the Gospels. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. To look through some of the stories. But more often than not, I hear like Jesus whispering, like, I, I understand, like, I understand what you're going yeah. through because I see the stories and I see, try to put myself in the stories and I'm like, man, like he's experiencing something here that I feel like I experience on a regular basis. It's almost like Jesus is standing in solidarity with us as we go through these different things. Well, yeah. And I would also say to bring it back to your earlier question, uh, Jesus also knows what it means to be marginalized. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so Jesus is kicked out of Nazareth, you know, cause they don't like him. That's right. Jesus is always taking the, the, is standing with the marginalized and so i think to people like lgbt people or people who feel on the outs you know you have someone who and who at the end of his life is completely marginalized by being executed yeah right i mean they don't even think his life is worth anything um yeah. he's naked on a cross he's vulnerable hmm. um i like to tell people that jesus entered the world uh, you know naked and vulnerable and leaves the world naked and vulnerable and That's so right. he's he stands with those who are on the margins. And so he understands them too. So it's a, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we can't, he can't sum up Jesus's <laughs> message, but I think that's part, I think what you're saying is, is really a big part of it, that God comes to stand with us and God comes to kind of take our side. Yeah, I think so too. Well, James, we're just about out of time. I know you've got things to do um, as well today, but thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Uh, this has been Amazing. And before I let you go, are you working on anything new? Any new books or projects you want to let us know about? Yeah, sure. So I have a new book coming out, God willing, next year um, called Learning to Pray, which is about prayer. Okay. Uh, I was going to call it How to Pray, but that seemed a little arrogant. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> let me show you the way. <laughs> then, well, kind of. Everybody rolled their eyes. So Learning <laughs> to Pray is a little more. I mean, it's the same book. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, and then I'm, I'm right now I'm working on a book on uh, Lazarus. Okay. Um, just opening up that story, which I just love. And uh, by the way, can I blow your mind a little bit? Please do. Yeah, this might be like a little, you know, Bible nerd type stuff, but um, I like it. There's a lot of um, uh, scripture scholars today. There, there are a lot of scripture scholars today, and a lot of research that says um, that the mysterious beloved disciple of John's gospel is in fact Lazarus. Hmm. hmm. And if you sort of look at all the pieces it all fits and it explains a lot of stuff isn't that interesting huh so i'm assuming because you're going to go into that a little bit more in the oh, book oh yeah huh. i mean look lazarus is the huh. only one who's called in the gospels you know he whom jesus loves right 
Yeah. The Gospels are, are the, the John's Gospel is very, you know, sort of focused on Jerusalem and Judea. Lazarus is from Bethany. Hmm. Uh, and ex it explains a ton. The other thing that sort of blew my mind the other day was it explains the kind of different character of John's Gospel, as you know, which is much more kind of lofty and elevated, you know what I mean? And yeah. Jesus almost seems like the risen one. Right. And this just blew my mind that this is from the, the scripture scholar Ben Witherington, uh, who said that if you've been raised from the dead, of course, the way that you present Jesus is going to be all about life and the risen one and resurrection. Wow. Isn't that cool? And wow. finally, get this, um, Lazarus, uh, uh, the beloved disciple, gets to the tomb first and believes first because first he's from he's from the area he knows where to go okay yeah uh and second of all he's already been raised from the dead he already gets it huh Isn't that cool that is very cool when is this book coming yeah. out yeah not for another couple of years a couple of years <laughs> <laughs> i gotta i gotta write it first it's right that's awesome well man uh thank you so much for dropping by this has been a lot of fun i'll put all your links in the show notes and i'll talk to you again soon thanks my friend thank you I need your guidance, Lord. Come on and get me, Lord. A real one coming to your throne. You gotta believe that I'm of your own. Conversation, revelation from the maker of man. Falling to my knees, praying to God, bless me with my want and my needs. Know that He got my back and no choice but to proceed. Only thing that I ask is that you do set me free. Free. Falling to my knees, praying to God, bless me with my want and my needs. Know that he got my back and no choice but to receive. Only thing that I ask is that you do set me free. Look, sometimes it doesn't hurt to be selfish. No, I got a big heart, I like to be helpful. Some people take it for granted, it goes for all levels. No, I might sound crazy, it can be dreadful. Got a clip, you think you got the keys. On the voyage, always searching, I feel at the knees. Nothing but to go above and I can go beneath. I've been through the highs and lows of things you can't believe. So many folk are independent, you know that's a given. Cause they've been hurt so many times, that's just part of living. God reminds us on the daily, it's already written. Can't believe she ate the fruit and we know that's forbidden. That's forbidden. It's been a minute since I felt so amazing. Lost star in the space where stars are gazing. Maybe I see heaven while the sun all blazing. Instead, I'm going to hit the dreams that I'm still chasing. Yeah. Father, please help me. I need your guidance, Lord. Come on and get me, Lord. Feel one coming to your throne. Gotta believe that I'm of your own. Conversation, revelation from the maker of man. Falling to my knees, praying to God, bless me with my want and my needs. Know that he got my back and no choice but to proceed. Only thing that I ask is that you do set me free, free. Falling to my knees, praying to God, bless me with my want and my needs. Know that he got my back and no choice but to proceed. Only thing that I ask is that you do set me free, yeah. When I die, you're the first I'm trying to see. Never got to say goodbye, cause I'm still in disbelief. Only seen you in my dreams, always blocked by all the beams. Maybe it's a sign I can take it to extreme, yeah. My decisions were the base of what we talked about. Always pulled to me, make sure I never had a doubt. You weren't the perfect person, but nobody is. You always dreamed to have a house of wife, some little kids. You were the king of in the making. Always about your paper, never sure there wasn't breaking. Forever I'm inspired. Your hustle, ambition, so I'm in mine. In the same place, close to my heart, your desire. 
end of the day, I just want to see your face. You to tell me that you're proud of me, I always find a way. I know that you're around me when the wind starts to sway. A car new in the trees, I just need you here to stay. Yeah. Father, please help me. I need your guidance, Lord. Come on and get me, Lord. A real one coming to your throne. Gotta believe that I'm of your own. God bless me with my one and my needs. Know that he got my back and no choice but to proceed. Only thing that I ask is that you do set me free. Free. Falling to my knees. Praying to God bless me with my one and my needs. Know that he got my back and no choice but to proceed. Only thing that I ask is that you do set me free. 